0: If you would turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. So we're continuing our series through the book of Revelation. Um, I don't know if you're excited about it, but I am. Um, Okay, we got one person excited. That is great. I'm preaching straight to you. Not looking at Jackie today. I'm looking right at you. (laughs) Um, Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3 are what we call the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And, and what these letters do is uh, kind of a way to, to think about it. Uh, if you have a Bible that has the words in red, uh, you'll see all of these words are read. And it's because it is Christ who is speaking to John. And John is writing down these words. Uh, so he, uh, Christ is addressing each of these churches uh, and uh, he'll tell them some of the things that they're doing good, some of the things that they might not be doing so great at, and then a way uh, to return back to him. He doesn't do this with every church uh, because some of the churches are actually doing fairly well. Uh, most of them are not. And so he uh, tells them how they can improve and what to do to uh, improve. And so all of these uh, it, all of these things that we're going to be saying today are coming directly from Christ, and they're being sent by John to these seven churches, which also tells you that this is a letter from John to these churches, and these seven churches would have received all of what we know as the book of Revelation. And so we're not going to be talking about the visions quite yet, that will be next week, Uh, those windows that we get to peer into, all of that will come in the weeks to come, but Uh, We want to address these churches uh, today. So Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But what you do not realize is that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you could cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Heavenly Father and gracious God, I thank you for this day, for this opportunity, and for our study through the book of Revelation. Lord, may it bring us hope, may it give us direction on what we are to do as a church, as we look through all of the seven churches and how you guided them through this deep and intense persecution and time of straying away. Lord, I thank you for this moment. Lord, open up our hearts to receive your message and speak through me as you only know how and as you always do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so like I said, these uh, letters, they point out a few things about each church. And honestly, we could spend the rest of our series, uh, our our eight-week series, just talking over each of the seven churches. Now, we're not gonna do that because that would probably be kind of boring to you. It'd be great for me but it'd probably be a little bit boring for you uh, to really go deep into them. But, uh, and I know uh, some churches, they have gone through series through the seven letters. But since we're trying to do an overview of the book, the entire book of Revelation, instead of saying in Revelation for three years, uh, we'll just stick to the summer. And uh, we'll move on to the windows and the visions uh, that happen in chapters four through the end of the book. Uh, But today we'll go through very briefly all of the letters to the churches. So just to prepare you for what we're about to do, we're going to briefly discuss what the contents are in each of the letters to each of the churches. And so I encourage you to go back and read it and study it because, like I said, it's a very large overview. Uh, But we'll look at those, we'll get the what, what it means for them so that we can know what it means for us what it means for us as a church here, because this is a letter that was written to them, but it was written for us. Now, we can't put our own thoughts and our ideas and our own meanings in this text because what it meant to them cannot be different than what it means to us, right? So this first church was in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, Christ praised them for their knowledge and their doctrine of Scripture for their good works and their perseverance through difficult times of persecution, and so what Christ is saying is that this church is is running. It's alive. It's well. It's it's running the the good race. It's fighting the good fight. It knows who God is, and he, and and they know who they are in Christ. They've been serving. They've been doing good works. But in verse chapter or in verse four of chapter two. Christ says, yet yeah, I hold this against you, which is a very similar language that he'll use with the churches that have something, uh, something that they can improve on. He says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And so what happened was they abandoned their love of God and more focused on their knowledge of God. And that probably led them to not have so much love and compassion for the people. They were simply serving because that's what you did. You you served because that's what a church looks like. But really they didn't have that love and the compassion for people. And so they served because they knew that they should, but not because they actually loved doing it, which means that they probably lost their desire to serve and become and they became more internally focused on themselves because They were more concerned with being right than they were loving. They were more concerned with having the correct doctrine than they were loving other people. And so as the way that they can fix this is if they repent. And you'll find this uh, throughout these seven letters that when a church is doing something wrong, Christ always asks them and, and calls them and challenges them to repent. Now just for a quick moment, repentance in our minds kind of sounds like punishment, right? We're being punished for our sins, but that's not necessarily the case. Repentance is less about giving up a sin and more about inviting God back into your life. And so when Christ is calling them to repent, he's inviting them into a deeper relationship with him. He's inviting them to to return to the life abundantly that they once had before they, they started falling into their sinful ways. And it's because if God is your life and He's in your life, you have less and less of a desire to sin. Whereas if you simply just give something up, you'll probably crave it, and you'll, probably, and you'll likely go back to your old ways. Right? It's kind of when we talk about how, how Christ saves us, He transforms our heart, He's transforming our heart so that we don't desire to sin anymore. right? So when you hear about repentance, yes, it can be painful, and yes, it's the goal is to lay down your sins before God and not look back, to, to put it at the foot of the cross and walk away and let God deal with it, to, to shine the light in the darkness, but it's more about inviting God simply back into your life and inviting Him, or, or He's inviting you into life abundantly. But the one who repents... As the NIV will put in, is the one who is victorious." And uh, you'll see this language throughout the letters. If you're the, to the one who is victorious, to the one who repents, to the one who remains in me, there'll be some type of reward. And all of them have something different, but they all mean the same thing. Uh, this one, in particular, says, "'ll we'll be given the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God." And so our, our reward uh, throughout all of them, the one who is victorious will inherit the kingdom of God, will inherit the, the promises of God, will inherit the protection of God. And though things might get very very bad unto death, as we'll see in the letters, the one who is victorious will stand with me when, when I come back for the second time and I, I defeat all of death and evil and grief and suffering. So moving on to the next church. The the church in Smyrna, this particular church is described as being spiritually rich despite their poverty. They are enduring persecution and some of their members have been imprisoned. And Christ urges them to continue to endure and to fear not what might come that some might even die but Christ himself will give them life the one who's victorious well, that uh, what that will persevere unto death will not be hurt by the second death this is another way of Christ saying just continue to do what you've been doing to the church in smyrna you're doing great you're you're enduring all of the persecution you're spiritually rich you know who I am you know what you're doing You're doing some great things, so hold on to that. I know things are getting tough. I know things are are getting very hard because you got church members going to prison every day, church members that are dying every day. And so I know that it's hard for you right now, but just hold on to what you have and what you're doing because you will not be hurt by the second death. You will not spiritually die. Uh, I won't allow you to spiritually die. And so John, as he's hearing these words, it, Christ continues on to the next church and in Pergamum. This particular church was praised for holding on to Christ's name and not denying their faith. But they had also been teaching a false gospel within their church walls, within their church gathering. And it led them to a life filled with sin. Now, to give you a little bit of context of what some of these churches were dealing with uh, in Asia Minor, they were under the Roman emperor um, and, and the one that followed Nero. And I, I just forgot his name, I didn't write it down. But, you know, you can go look it up later, right? This is what your own studies for so that you can fill in the blanks that I am leaving you. But uh, the, the emperor that would come after Nero. What he did was he established a law. He thought of himself as God, and he thought that he deserved worship. And so he created this law that if you did not worship him, then your penalty was death. Right? If you didn't worship this emperor as God, as the highest God, then you, you would suffer death. And so it became part of the culture to just simply go pay your respects, in a sense, to go and worship this guy, this emperor, and then go about your business so that you could continue to live. And with these people, they also uh, had these temples set up throughout the land, these temples that were dedicated to other gods. And what would happen was it was part of the culture to go to these temples. Uh, some of them uh, were, were for fertility, and you can probably fill in the blanks of what was happening there, but people would go to these temples. They would give themselves up. They, they would come in with the intention of uh, bearing a child, and they, they had this fertility God that would bless all of the, the adultery that would happen in there all of the immorality that would happen in there, this, this fertility God would would bless them for it. And so this was just part of the culture. If, if you wanted to have a child and you and your, uh, your wife or you and your husband were having troubles, you would go to this temple, they would close the doors behind you, and then you would be blessed to have it. Now, we don't have that necessarily here, but what we do have... is a lot of immorality that Christians are tolerating. A lot of sins that uh, are, are now being preached behind pulpits that are not sinful anymore. And so this is what was happening here. That this was part of the culture. They said, well, this is just part of our culture of our time, and they're looking back in Scripture, and they're, they're interpreting it, and they're looking at it, and they're like, well, well, God is surely okay with this. So behind their pulpits, the, the pastor, the, the Christians, they would all come together, and they would worship these other gods. They would uh, tolerate all of the sin that was happening, and they would continue to worship the emperor. And they didn't deny Christ. If, they ask you, if someone asked them if they were a Christian, they would come up and they'd say, "Yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but you, know, I'll I worship the Emperor. I'll worship these other gods. You know, Christ is just one of the other ones that we worship." And this is where Christ says, "I know exactly where you are. You are right next to the throne of Satan. Ooh, how painful of a statement for a church to hear that. You're right next to the throne of Satan. And you need to repent. Because Christ says, I will intervene and I will fight against whatever is happening there. And it won't be during the second coming. I will come very soon, sooner than the second coming, and I will fight what's happening. And you're either going to be on my side or you're not. And so, if you want to be on my side and you want to be victorious in the end... I urge you to repent, return to me. I'm inviting you back into this life abundantly because the one who is victorious will be given manna and a white stone with a new name on it. Now, you might look at it and you're like, a white stone, what am I going to do with that, right? But when they were having their athletic competition, their athletic games, the white stone was meant for the one who won. So like for us, we look at the Olympics and you get the gold medal, right? This is what the white stone was for them. It was, it was whoever won, who came in first place, they would receive a white stone and they would have their name on it. Uh, and so for, them to, for, for Christ to say, you're going to be given a white stone, you're going to be given victory, and it's going to have a new name not your name of your past, of your, of your sins and stuff, but this new name because I've transformed your heart. And he's going to give uh, manna to those who repent who, and who are victorious because manna, if you remember in the Old Testament, was meant to sustain and to fulfill all the needs of the Israelites as they were in the wilderness. And so Christ is basically saying that if you're victorious, if you repent, if you... Uh, Accept my invitation into life abundantly and repent, you will have victory and you will be sustained and you will be taken care of, and all of your needs will be fulfilled. John, then, um, or Christ through John, addresses this next church in Theotira. This church was great at serving their community with love, they were growing in their love for each other and for the community in which they were placed. They're doing more than what they were doing when they started. That's what scripture will say. And, and basically, to kind of put it in our language, I, I've told you a few times, but next year, being our year of outreach, I've said this a few times, that we're reaching out farther than we ever have before. We're reaching into the community into uh, deeper and farther. This is what this church was doing. They are reaching so much farther that when they started, compared to where they are at the time of this letter, you know they're they're impacting their community so much more with the love of Christ and and Christ praises them for this. He says you're doing good. You're you're doing so much more. You're reaching farther to receive or to to for the harvest. You're you're reaching farther to find the lost. You're serving their community. You're showing my love to my people and you're loving God and you're loving others. But like the other church, they tolerated false teaching. Now they weren't teaching it behind the pulpit, but they were saying, well, it's okay. Like, you, you, you know, I know you're sinning, but it's okay. So they were tolerating these other practices uh, that promoted immorality, that uh, promoted godlessness, and they were tolerating it within their church. And uh, for the sake of trying to relate it to our day and age, it'd be like never preaching sin never preaching what sin is, never preaching that you need to repent, never preaching that you are not as great as you would like to think that you are, right? And so it was probably always encouraging messages about how you're, you're doing awesome and that even though you're sinning, it's okay. You can keep sinning because God will forgive you. All of these other things that might have come with it, but Christ calls them to repent of their sins and to keep and continue to do the work of the Lord. And By now you're probably getting the similar message of something's wrong and you need to repent. Something's wrong and you need to repent. You need to accept that invitation back into life abundantly. And so the church in Sardis was hardworking. They had the reputation of being alive, but they were actually asleep, which means that they were doing everything that a church is meant to do, but they didn't have any faith. And so because they didn't have faith, all of their works were dead. And what they needed to do was accept that invitation back into life abundantly and regain their faith in Christ. The church in Philadelphia, the one in Asia Minor, not in the United States, church in Philadelphia was commended for their endurance and keeping the word of God. And they were told to hold on to what they have. So the church in Philadelphia was doing great. God was saying, you're doing great. Just hold on to what you have because I know things are going to get tough. But just continue to do the good work and continue to share the love that you've been doing. And then we get to the church in Laodicea, which is probably the most famous and most preached text out of the entire book of Revelation and especially of all the seven churches. And that's Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you are either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You've likely heard, if you've been in church long enough, a sermon over this. And for so many years, I thought of this passage and read this passage in a particular way, that you're either hot or you're cold. We all want to be on fire for Christ. And so since we want to be on fire for Christ, we all need to be hot in our faith, right? You want to be hot in your faith. You don't want to be cold in your faith because if you're cold in your faith and you're not doing anything for God and, and you're, you're going to go to hell because of it, right? So we all want to be hot in our faith and, and you definitely don't want to be lukewarm. You can't be in between cold and hot. You, gotta, you, you can't be lukewarm because if you're trying to serve two masters, I will just spit you right out of my mouth, right? My views have changed on that i don't think that way of it is accurate biblically and so listen closely to verse 15 i'm going to explain it i know your deeds that you are neither hot or neither cold nor hot i wish this is jesus speaking i wish you were either one or the other now if it's true that if we're cold in our faith That we won't inherit the kingdom of God. Is it really the will of God that he wants us to choose to be cold? No, I don't think that's it. I don't think it's his will for us to disobey him. And it's definitely not his will. And he makes that very clear that it's not his will to be lukewarm, to play both sides, if you will. I don't believe it's the will of Christ for us to go to hell because otherwise why would he suffer and die on the cross if he just wanted us to go there anyways? And so with a little bit of research, what you'll find is this. Laodicea was a city not too far from Colossae, which had a reservoir of cold water. People would often go there and and fill their jars with cool water for drinking. It was also just south of Hierapolis, which was known for its hot springs. You could go there for a bath or to clean their clothes, but hot water was also used to make beverages warm. So uh, a common beverage of the time was wine, and and they would drink it hot or cold. So they would take the hot water, they'd pour it into their wine to make it warm, but they would also pour cold water into their wine uh, to make it cold. Now, in our day and age and, and in a general Baptist background, I like to think of it as coffee. Right? You either make coffee hot or cold, but you will rarely find, if anyone, asking for lukewarm coffee. Like I honestly want to try it at Starbucks one time. Just drive up uh, you know, when they when you tell them uh, white chocolate mocha, that's my wife's drink. White chocolate mocha. And they always say, You want it hot or cold? I want it lukewarm. I, I just wonder. What they would say to that but no one asked for that no one wants lukewarm and so there's some theories that there's aqueducts that were built that where these two uh, where the cold springs were and, and where the the hot springs were that they mixed together and they created a lukewarm type of water in laodicea now i don't know if that's necessarily true because i see arguments for it and i see arguments against it but what i do know is this they used hot water for a purpose to clean They used hot water to make their beverages warm. They probably used hot water. If you put water over a fire, it will boil and you can cook food. So they had a use for hot water. For cold water, they used it as a refreshing cold drink uh, on on a hot summer day. And so uh, they had a use for cold water. But lukewarm water, the only use that they actually ever had was to induce vomiting. That unless you were sick, you didn't touch lukewarm water. And so what I think Christ is telling the church through John is that the church in Laodicea has become too comfortable and they have become unusable in the kingdom of God. Meaning that they are doing little to nothing that was useful for the kingdom. They weren't hot, they didn't have a purpose, they weren't cold, they didn't have purpose. They were lukewarm, meaning that they didn't have of any use, of any value to the kingdom of God. And so Christ stands at the door and knocks, waiting for someone to respond to his call to repent, to put away their childish ways and draw closer to him to get ready to serve as he had served his people. Each of these churches describe what a church can be at any time and at any place if we're susceptible to the tactics and schemes of the enemy that he uses to destroy us. So there's three main tactics of our enemy that Satan uses to try and destroy churches. And the whole point of the seven churches is not so that you can read the book of Revelation, see the seven churches, and see where the missionary Baptist church falls. Or to see where, where Mount Gilead falls. Or, or to see where, um, where other churches fall. The point of it is to see how Satan uses his tactics and his schemes to destroy a good church. The first way, the first tactic of the, the main three that I'll discuss here is to be full of of biblical knowledge of God, but be cold. And not cold in the sense of hot or cold water, but just cold-hearted. He uses churches that are so fully doctrinated that they become bitter to the love that they're supposed to have. They become more concerned with being right and winning arguments than they do about loving the people. These are the churches and the Christians that dismiss you for simply disagreeing with their theology and their beliefs on a, on a secondary issue. And they, and they believe and claim that you're not going to go to heaven just because you don't agree with their theology, you don't agree with their doctrine. And so you, uh, unless you come into our church, unless you come a, a, into our denomination, you will never inherit the kingdom of God simply because of a disagreement on a secondary issue. These people in these churches are filled with pride The pride of being right instead of the love that Christ brings. They pursue to be right but forget to be loving. And so they don't place much of an emphasis on reaching the lost because the lost disagree and they would rather be right than to see a family or a friend or a family member saved. The second tactic that Satan uses is to be spiritually aware but indifferent. These churches and individuals serve, and they love others. They are active in their communities. They are staples in their communities, and they experience the presence of God during worship. They understand the spiritual battle that they're in. They're, they're going and they're reaching the lost relentlessly. They're serving their communities. They're spreading the love of God to everyone. But since they are indifferent, they tolerate sin because they don't know what sin is. And so they they allow false teaching because they they reject any type of disagreement. They would uh, rather serve people than know what the Bible says. And so since there was a lot of ungodly and biblical actions going on during that time, and they're changing culture, they would accept it because it was part of the culture, even if it wasn't part of the Bible. These churches reach the lost but expose them to false teachings so the people that they reach remain lost. So Satan uses these churches to make them feel good about themselves for how many baptisms and, and people that they have. But the ultimate reality is that they remain lost in their ways because they've never known the Bible. The last tactic that Satan uses Is the church that is spiritually weary and falling away what satan tries to do much like a lion will do when it's trying to attack its prey is find the one that's weakest and most isolated from the group isolated from the pack because when you are alone you are, and when you don't have other people or churches to help pick you back up when you fall back down, you are increasing your odds of being consumed by the lion, of being consumed by the enemy. Ecclesiastes even tells us that two is better than one, that a cord of three strands is not easily broken. If Satan can isolate you thinking that your sin is unique to you, thinking that your situation is unique to you, thinking that you're the only one that's going through this, if he can convince you that the darkness in your life is overcoming you and that no one cares about you, and if he can isolate you, that's where he can do his best work. Because it's in that that when we're weary and we're tired and we're falling away, he can get us to fall asleep, to become so burnt out on trying to do everything all by ourselves, and eventually we rest in our spirit, in that moment, and we go through the motions and we fall asleep. And so how do we fight against this? Well, we need to be faithful to the word of God and love one another deeply in order to combat his schemes and tactics. And so uh, since this series, I, I'm drawing from a lot of what the Village Church is doing and Matt Chandler with that series. I really like how he laid this out and. This was something that I've been trying to do with this church. He just kind of like had the words and I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing that. I, I'm trying to do that too. right?" So I like how he says it. But the three main things that, that we're trying to do here uh, and that I'm trying to accomplish and I know that you're trying to accomplish as well is that we must first know God to know ourselves. We must know God to know ourselves, meaning that you need to know who God is and the truth of God's word in order to know who you are in Christ. This is where doctrine comes in. Us as General Baptists, we have a certain doctrine and a set of beliefs that we come in and, and, and we have and we share. Now, it doesn't mean that we're so focused on our doctrine that we we look at the Missionary Baptist Church and we're like, oh, you believe once saved, always saved? Well, guess what? You're not saved, right? So we don't do that. But what we do is we, we ground ourselves. It, it builds our foundation of who we are in Christ and what we believe. So that on secondary issues, we aren't wavering, we aren't indifferent, but that we can stand firm on what we believe and, and know that there is a place where there is healthy disagreement. And how you do this is you you read and you study the word of God. You communicate with God through prayer. And the better that you know God and the truth of his word, the better you will come to know yourself. But that can't stand alone. If you're only seeking God in yourself, you'll become bitter to the world because you'll be so focused on what you believe and you'll be more focused on being right. And so you also have to have a community. So we seek to know God and to know ourselves with a community of other people. This is what we call church. We seek to know God and to know who we are in Christ and in a community because we don't want to be isolated. We don't want to be uh, so far isolated that we can eventually fall asleep, but instead we have a community that whenever we fall down, we are able to get back up because someone is there to pick us back up. You know we were built and designed for relationships, so we need to come together as a community of believers, learn about the truth of God's word, and learn about who we are as a church. And lastly, we are to have a mission based or a mission. We are to have a mission based on the knowledge of God and ourselves in the community. Everything that you do as a Christian and as a disciple. Uh, as you do, and as we as a church do together, should be influenced by the Word of God with a mission and a purpose. Us as, as a church should be a community on mission that is informed by the Word of God. And a Christian community it isn't mean, meant to lack any of those things. If there's no mission, there's no Christian community. It's just a community. If we aren't informed and living out the Word of God, then there's no Christian community because we can have a mission but not be informed by the Word of God and realize that our mission is not what God actually desires for us. Instead, a Christian community is meant to be informed by the Word of God with the mission of bringing light to the darkness. That means that the doubts, the fears, the sin, the rebellion, the struggles that you face as a Christian in this community should not have to be hidden in the dark, but rather exposed by the light to shine as the brightest light, to see that Christ has the ultimate victory over any darkness that this church will face. Every single church that Christ addresses in Revelation ends with Christ being victorious over the struggles and the darkness that they face, along with those who take that invitation into life abundantly that that accept that repentance and they repent of their sins and they draw closer to God he calls them to something deeper or something deeper whereas a group of people informed by the word of God who know themselves and are on a righteous mission can endure through anything they will stand and fight they will stand victorious at the end of time when Christ comes back and puts to end all of the war, every mass shooting, every ounce of pain, suffering, and evil in this world. And so I want Shady Grove to be that type of church. Like one of the churches that, that Christ only prays, that they had a mission, they had a purpose, but they were doing that mission in a community. They weren't trying to accomplish the mission alone, but they were in a community. And all of it, their community and their mission was informed by the Word of God. I want this place to be a place where we know God, and we know God so well that we know who we are, and that we are informed by God to carry out His mission together. That's why our website reads, Life is Better Together, because our life is truly better together. We were built for relationships, and we are meant to share our struggles, to share our fears, to share our doubts. To bring light into our own darkness so that we can go and shine the light in the darkness. We are better together. And so will you choose to be better together. To be informed by the word of God. To know who God is. To know who you are. We choose to be a part of a community that is informed by the word of God and carry out the mission that's informed by the word of God that's carried out by the community? Heavenly Father and gracious God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. I ask that in this moment, as we take this next song as a, a moment to respond to the, the message that we've heard today, Lord, I ask that you just, you instill in us to be informed by your word. To do life together in a community. And to have a mission that's informed by your word to carry out together. Lord, may this church make such an impact on this community. And be so grounded in those three things that we become a true disciple of you and that we become so much of a disciple of you that no matter what we face, we will always be able to stand and fight because we are informed by your word. We know who you are. We know what you've done. We know that you will be victorious in the end and that we will stand with you. So Lord, I just ask that you instill in us a heart after yours, that whatever struggles we face, we can stand victorious with you. Whatever darkness we have in our life that you instill in us to repent, to uh, invite you back into our life and that we accept that invitation into life abundantly through repentance. Lord, I thank you for this day and for this moment. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.